Hello, and welcome to the Above Average of Relevance podcast. Today is Thursday, December 22nd. This is episode 28. I'm Matt Weaver, and I'm here with Scott Nelson. Good evening, Scott. Good evening. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm fabulous. It's, uh, it was like 30 degrees today after it being like minus 30 degrees just a few days ago. So, uh, you know, being outside today was almost pleasant. It was astonishing. So we're early on in winter now, you know, it's only been a few weeks and I keep making this mistake that I back my car out of the garage and I look at the thermometer in my car mm. and I see that it's, oh, it's like 28 degrees or 30 degrees. It's nice. No. And I forget that I've just been parked in the garage. And the other morning when it was 18 below, then it just rapidly starts ticking down, 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 <laughs> down, down, down. And then pretty yeah. soon it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. it is cold out. <laughs> how low, how low will it go? Yeah. Uh, so that's good. So we should, we have two things to start with. And as opposed to stumbling over both of them, let's start with Scott's update on his fabulous diet. Oh, right. Okay. So last week, you remember I had a big, big first week. Mm -hmm. Um, Last week. Like six pounds or something. Yeah. 6.3 pounds. Last week, after we had podcasted, the week. Um, took a turn for the worse. Um, I had a big Christmas thing going on last weekend and went out to eat a couple times. The net was I actually gained 1.3 pounds in week two. That's not bad. Not bad. Not good. I, um, I mean, after a six pound loss in a single week, like you could have easily gained four pounds back. Right. Just by doing nothing. Yeah, and it wasn't like, oh, I had this amazing, perfect week and I gained weight. No, I I know exactly why and where that <laughs> 1.3 pounds came from. Yeah. So, you know, it's a little setback, but this is a, I mean, this process I've defined is going to run until at least June. So, so you got time. Uh, I better get on board with having a setback. And so, yeah. Okay. Forward from here. Well, I don't know. This next week, though, it might get worse before it gets better. Well, we are heading into... this is going to be holiday week. Yeah. And I better just focus on my come-from-behind game um, to catch back up in the new year, which is probably what's going to happen. But, you know, when I decided to do this in the run-up to Christmas, I knew this would probably happen, but at least trying is better than if I was like, oh, just forget about it. I'll eat whatever I want for three weeks and then start on January 1st. I mean, I likely could have gained, you know, eight to 10 pounds, right, over the holidays. So I think having this in the back of my head is going to help minimize that. Even if I do gain another pound or two next week, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, no, that's a good plan. So Uh, as you know, I've been discussing with you a food challenge that I might personally undertake starting in January. And I think I've decided on no sweets, no alcohol um, for the month of January. I have not yet decided if I will allow myself a day off uh, because it is actually my birthday in January. I may or may not. It depends, I guess, on how how terrible it is to... How deprived you're feeling? Yes. Um, but I think 
I am likely to be able to postpone any, you know, I, my friend Rachel would love nothing more than to make a cake or something for a birthday. She does for all of her friends and she really likes to bake and she's good at it. Um, but I could probably dissuade postpone. her to do that in February. And it would if I fine. recall, your birthday's fairly late in January, isn't it? Um, it's 19, so it's okay. two-thirds. You could yeah. delay a week or two. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I think that's a good that's a good goal. Um, if we podcast next week, then we should drink some serious booze. Yeah, if you're going to keep it up in yeah. January, that's right. Uh, I, you know, I looked again at another liquor store here in town. Uh, you and I have both been on a mission to actually mm-hmm. find a bottled and bond bottle of Pennsylvania rye after we discussed that mm-hmm. article from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, again, no luck, but. Um, I'll be traveling again for the holiday and it'll be another opportunity to try in different liquor stores in different states. Okay. Yeah, I've been, I think I've been to almost every liquor store in town now over the last few weeks. There was something else I was looking for too. And while I was there, I was checking out Pennsylvania Rise and just checking out Scotch selections. Yeah. Just so I kind of know now what is where if I'm ever in the market again. Um, Yeah, we're hunting for unicorn things like Lafroy 18. Good luck finding that. Yeah. And Pennsylvania rye, hard to find. Yeah. So far. Need to find a reason to go up to Certix and or Total Wine. Probably have better luck there. Or at least more shiny things to look at. (laughs) All right, so speaking of food, we'll just wing this right into our first topic. Okay. Uh... In the name of science, you and I had dinner this evening at Chipotle, at the one of the Chipotles here in town. Mm-hmm. There are two in town, and we ate at the one closer to where we are now. And uh, we have discussed in the past, I don't know what we've done on the podcast, that uh, since, and maybe even a little before, mm-hmm. since the food safety scare that Chipotle had uh, some months ago, the service at our local Chipotles has been terrible. They've just been very, very slow. And we found it disappointing because both you and I kind of liked to eat at Chipotle. Uh, And it's relatively easy to eat something that's fairly healthy and good for you. It's easy to eat something that's not so good yes. for you. Yes, and you, it's easy to overeat at Chipotle. But it is, but it's it also is possible for less than ten bucks, you can roll out of there with something that's healthy and good, mm-hmm. and can accommodate almost any diet plan that you might want to yes. be on. Right? Yes. I mean, if you want to go paleo, I think you can do that there. Mm-hmm. If you want to be vegan, you can do that there. There's mm-hmm. lots of ways you can go and get anything that you want, which is part of the brilliance of the concept of Chipotle. Mm-hmm. Uh, And so an article that we came across this week was an article in the Washington Post that was discussing that even though Chipotle has now passed the food scare, um, their their sales numbers are still dropping. And in this most recent quarter, they were down 22%. The stock is down a similar amount. Uh, They had co-CEOs. One of the CEOs is out. There's only the one CEO now. And... What 
Chipotle corporate has discovered is half of the Chipotles in the United States have terrible service like we have experienced here. And so my supposition was maybe now that corporate is aware that they have a terrible problem, maybe it will get fixed. And so in the name of science, we went to Chipotle tonight to see if our local Chipotle had fixed these terrible problems. And I can report unequivocally that they have not. No. Uh, we got to Chipotle at 7.07 p.m. Uh, the line was to the door. We counted. There were 23 people ahead of us in line. And it took 30 minutes it was 7.37 when I handed my credit card over to the cashier to pay for my uh, burrito bowl and bag of chips. And you were right behind me in line. Mm-hmm. One of the things that corporate has discovered that people complain about is that the lines are slow. And when they finally get up there to get and order their burrito... Often they're out of one or two ingredients. And you experienced that. You wanted the fajita, fajita veggies. Fajita veggies. Nope. And they were out. Um, they lied to you, of course, and said, in only like one minute, we'll have some fajita veggies for you. Which... As we proceeded to watch him dump the raw veggies on the grill right. in the back. Like... Uh, which, yeah, we knew was a Probably lie. more like five or six minutes before they And so you... You said, no, that's okay. The person behind you in line also wanted the veggies and said, nah, screw it. I'll just have something else. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up waiting many minutes because there were bowls ahead of us that were web orders um, that they were having trouble filling simply because the workers who were responsible for doing that were just not good. Like the girl we had help us at the front of the line with, you know, putting the rice and the protein and the beans or whatever in was very good. The person at the tail end of the line, which is the most important job, right? I mean, that person has command of a dozen ingredients, you know, was not good. He was not able to keep up. So my bowl was filled and then sat on the counter for five or six or seven minutes, Mm -hmm. cooling off (laughs) Uh, while we waited for the guy at the end of the line to make a mess and make, like, the four bowls in front. I mean, it was was unbelievably slow. Uh, So that's another thing that's brought up in the article is, you know, they do this call-ahead thing or you use the app. They have an app now where you can order ahead from the web and just come in and pick it up. And... They're just interleaving those with the in-person orders. Right. And so then you end up back behind all these web orders. And the guy was, like, complaining under his breath tonight, well, if we didn't have to do all these web orders, you know, we'd be able to get the line through. Well, no, that was not a factual statement. Even if he didn't do the web orders, there was still going to be a line. But Yeah, because that um, guy was just slow. Yeah. So that's the thing it says in the article. They're talking about adding a separate prep bar in the back. Strictly for filling the web orders, which, which is the way it should be. I mean... Yeah, but clearly our Chipotle doesn't have it. No. I think you could do it 
there was only two people working the line. You could do it in the same line if it was another person. It, right. It's like the same person shouldn't be filling the in-person orders and the web orders. You should have somebody stepping, you know, behind and around and in and out and just like grabbing the ingredients when there's a pause. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I don't feel the need to nitpick. Uh, my food was fine. It tasted good. Mm-hmm. It was very filling. It's a Chipotle. I know and love. It took a half an hour to get a burrito right. bowl. Uh, every so, problem that's called out in this article we experienced. Yes. In the restaurant tonight. Yes. And I have every time. That's why, you know, I used to eat at Chipotle all the time. And I would say it's even before the food scare that the Chipotles in town here have gotten um, really slow and terrible. I mean, it's been a long time. And I'd, I mean, I hadn't eaten at Chipotle in three or four months because I just have completely given up on it. Right. So we went tonight to give it another go and... Like, I, I will not go back for the foreseeable future because it's just a painful experience. And the thing is, we intentionally went kind of late, right? We said we were going to go after 7. 7 o'clock, Thursday night, the bulk of the dinner rush. I mean, there's no other restaurant in town that's still running a 30-minute wait. Right. Right? And Chipotle is not because there's that many people. It's just because they're literally just that slow. And it's not like there weren't people in the restaurant. There are lots of people working there just not working (laughs) i am encouraged that it will get fixed because prior to reading this article i thought it was just our chipotles right and kind of my data points were you know a few months back i went to a chipotle in san francisco i've gone to a couple in the twin cities and always gotten markedly better service than i get here in town so i just thought it was a problem locally yeah like we even discussed yeah you know, the managers here just need to be fired, right? We right, just need because our Chipotle is so much terrible than anybody else's. Yeah. Not the case. No. Obviously, it's a pervasive problem. Uh, yeah, the article said mm-hmm. half of the Chipotles around the country. So I guess I'm encouraged that it might actually get fixed now. Well, they've at least identified the problem. And I don't know, maybe uh, maybe in February we should we should go again. That'll give them... You know, almost two months to get stuff fixed. We'll see. Okay, we'll check back in. In February. What we need to do is find a man on the inside. We need to find somebody who works there to get kind of the inside scoop on what's coming from corporate, what they're changing. Like, Yeah. I would like to know, like, you know, because something is probably going to be hitting the fan before long hair, and I wonder <laughs> how that's going to go. It- yeah, hopefully, hopefully it's not a fan that's pointed at the food, <laughs> <laughs> knowing Chipotle's history. But yeah, okay, we shall see. I will say. So we had a Chipotle. We waited thirty minutes to get it, and then we ate at the restaurant. Uh, and then I said, you know, I think I'd like a coffee tonight for when we podcast, and you agreed. And so we went next door to the Caribou, and. Being that it's in the evening, we both wanted decaf coffees. Um, and they had some decaf coffee. There's another coffee shop we like to go to in town that at 5 o'clock, like at 5 p.m., they dump their decaf coffee. And they no longer have decaf coffee because people only want decaf coffee in the mornings, I guess. Um, <laughs> Which makes no sense. So they had to make us some decaf coffee. And he's like, it'll be like five minutes. And I thought... Well, we just waited 30 minutes for freaking Chipotle. <laughs> what do you mean? Five minutes for fresh coffee? Sign right. me up, right? 
<laughs> so, I, you know, I was totally predisposed to not be angry at all about having waited five minutes for coffee. So, yeah, that is the one upside to it. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about this Future of Cities video. Okay. Um, which you watched earlier today. I think I watched it yesterday. Today, maybe. Um, anyway, um, this Future of Cities video is uh, a filmmaker by the name of Oscar Boyson. Uh, went out into the world. He did it. Um, I guess he's got a YouTube channel. And so he tried to, he assembled this um, video to try to figure out what do, what do the cities of the future look like? Like, what are the trends and how is it going to work? And it's an 18 minute long video. He was in uh, Shenzhen, China, Detroit, Singapore, New York City, Copenhagen, Seoul, Lagos, and Mumbai. So he's all over the world. Uh, I, the, uh, you know, travel, especially international travel like that, can be trying, but that going to all of those cities uh, would be a phenomenal way to spend, you know, a month or six weeks. That would be a really fun time. Um, but the... Uh, so... Part of why this is interesting is um, apparently currently on our planet, 54% of the people on Earth currently live in a city. Uh, and this is higher, this proportion is higher than has ever been the case in the history of Earth. Um, and it's going up. Um, it is projected that there's going to be 70% of the world's population living in an urban area by the year 2050. And so um, this presents some interesting challenges about how you arrange and organize cities in order to accommodate the tremendous numbers of people who live in them. Um, and so, I mean, I'm fundamentally a car guy, and... I uh, I like my car. Mm -hmm. I like it to get around. Living in the Midwest, obviously, I have opinions about, you know, using a car to get someplace because lots of things are just far away because here in the Midwest, things are far away from each other. That said... Um, when you're in a place like New York or San Francisco, right, where the density is much higher, you can you can walk to places, you can take public transit. Even in Chicago, public transit is a wonderful option to get around the city. Um, <clears throat> but when you think about, you know, how big cars are and how much space they take up and how people move with cars... Uh, it's clear that unless you're willing to do something truly radical, um, 
you know, building more roads in the traditional ways that we've built roads isn't necessarily going to accommodate having all of the world's population, you know, or 70% of the world's population living in cities. So you got to do something else, right? And like in New York, they have a, uh, a bicycle program now. I forget what it's called, right? But you can, you can pay a little bit of money and there are bike kiosks all over the place, get on a bike, pedal to wherever you got to go, and then put the bike back in the kiosk near where you go. Um, and those bikes actually have uh, GPS locators on them, so they collect data about where the bikes go, and you can see where people move around. Um, so it's things like that um, that's interesting. The uh, um, They said that in Denmark, when you buy a car you pay a 150% tax on the car, whether it's electric or not. Uh, and so that really encourages people to um, not have a car and use public transit or pedal um, or walk. Um, yeah, and kind of the point of that was is, you know, they made the point that in America, the cost of highways, like the cost of vehicle infrastructure is highly subsidized, as in it's not just paid for by the people who use it? Sort of, sort of not. I have a lot of problems with those statements. I mean, those are very politically charged statements that sound innocent on the surface, but they're not. Because even if you don't own a car, I guarantee you, you use the public roadways. Because you probably don't grow all of your food in the backyard you probably go to a grocery store and get it. And the food that you bought at the grocery store came to you on a public road. And the utility truck that drives to your house to fix your internet connection came to your house on a public road. So, right, so then the goods that were transported in those vehicles on that public road should have a higher tax to pay for it then. So then the individuals who are actually consuming the goods who use the road would be paying for them. I mean, there, there's a way to fix yeah. that, right? Uh, then there is. you tax the goods well, to pay for the roads. You know, Traditionally, we've done that through a gas tax in the United States. And Congress has, um, in the long list of things it's failed to do, it's failed to increase the gas tax uh, to accommodate the changes in inflation. I think the gas tax was last changed in the middle 90s, mm. right, which is, you know, 20-some years ago. Um, and so, you know, our National Highway Trust Fund, for instance, is always running out of money, and Congress is always having to do these special one-time things to give it money because um, we've entered in this era where having, you know, taxes that are fair and make sense is not something that we do. Right. right. And that is a different political statement. But um, as a guy who likes roads, because right. I know that they do lots of things, I am fine with paying the tax to have them. But hy hypothetically, someone who, let's say, grows their own food, um, doesn't use any goods that are travel on a highway... I'm pretty sure the seeds didn't come from them, yeah. right? Or the clothes. Well, on they're their seed back. savers. They collect them. 
what about the refrigerator in their house, right? <laughs> That's why this is hypothetical. Yeah. The same amount of their income tax, federal income tax, the same percentage of their federal income tax would go to roadways as to yours when you're driving, you know, yep. tens of thousands of miles every year on those same roadways. That's the point. That's the point of the article. And that's the point of pointing out that in other countries, cars are much more expensive and the taxes on cars are much more expensive because they're trying to have those who use the roadways pay a greater percentage for the maintenance yeah. of said roadways, which we've, we've, I don't think is unreasonable. Well, but we generally fundamentally subsidize all forms of transport. Right. Minneapolis St. Paul is you know, they just added the couple of light rail light rail lines that that are there and they're uh, in the middle of going through the process of building another light rail line. Um, you know, and riding on one of these things costs three bucks or something like that. Um I know that lots of people don't pay because it's um they only spot check that you've paid to get on the train, right? Because you buy it at the kiosk and away you go and you know it lots of people don't pay let's just put it that way right uh but the even if you do pay right that three dollars or whatever it costs to ride the train um that there's no way that 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 covers what it costs to build and maintain that thing uh i think it's somewhere between 20 and 30 million dollars a mile to build one of those things, right? And then they only last for the 30 years or so that they last, and then you got to tear them all down and build them again, just like roads. Um, so those infrastructure projects are very expensive and are also subsidized mm -hmm. by public funding. Um, bus systems drive on the roads that we already have, which makes a lot of sense in my mind. Um, and they, uh, you know, they often end up running with some subsidies from the mm -hmm. government. Um, but one of the things that many cities are adding around the world includes, uh, um, more public space, less roads, more public space, and they do things to make it easier to choose a mode of transport that's not get in your car and drive there. And uh, in principle, that's a thing that I can support and I think is fundamentally good, right? Our town here of Rochester is slowly but kind of continuously building additional bike lanes and bike paths around the city. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a wonderful and valuable thing. Um, so I have a strong preference for situations where the modes of transport are separated. And that's what I found most interesting was the discussion of cities of these successful places where, you know, the cars are going through an overhead tunnel and then underneath it's a complete open pedestrian bike space. It's not like cars and bikes and pedestrians all using the same, mm -hmm. you know, the same roads and the same spaces. Um, a lot of the projects seem focused on separating out and isolating the vehicle traffic from the pedestrian traffic from the bike traffic. Yeah, and there's a lot of reason to do that. 
Um, I it's safer for everybody. Yeah, even in town here, I personally am not all in on the adding bike lanes because there are several places where they've added bike lanes to very busy roadways. And, you know, they have those funky um, zones now where you can cross into the turn lane yep. and you're crossing through the bike lane. And they are roads that were not built to have simultaneous bike and no. vehicular traffic. I mean, clearly so, my preference is to ride not on the road like i i don't like to in rochester i when i'm riding my bicycle i do not ride on bicycle lanes on the road Mm -hmm. simply because it's relatively uncommon here and so drivers don't they don't even accommodate that right They, right. they, they won't see you they won't know why you're where you are they'll think you're in the wrong they'll run you over not because they hate you just because the idea that there's a bike lane and that they've got to share the road with a bicycle doesn't compute for them. Right. Because it never has. Um, but there are lots of bike paths that are not <clears throat> right uh, on the roadway that you can get around lots of places. So over time that will change. And that's where like the the main case study in New York was biking. Yeah. And But it wasn't about separating bike traffic and no vehicle traffic i mean you know we're all very familiar i've I've read tons of news stories and seen images and videos and stuff of bike traffic in new york city and how dangerous it is and how congested everything is and i mean to me that that's not a city of the future i think they were just trying to kind of throw a bone to the united states and find a couple progressive well, city things to highlight, but to me that doesn't even compare to when you see the city, you know, in um, Singapore, was, where you know yeah. everything is just amazing and architected from the ground up. Yeah, but what they talked about twenty years ago, where that city stands now, was was nothing. nothing, right? So they've got, you know, they've been able to make a bunch of different choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and this article, this video covers more than just transportation options. But um, when you talk about cities, you you can't help but spend most of your time talking about transportation. Right. Um, the the difference is, um, like part of it is in New York. As more people take bicycles, that's less cars. Right. Every trip you take on a bicycle. If you were going to take it on a car, well, now you've taken a car off the road, right? Because now there's less Ubers, there's less taxis, there's less limousines, there's less cars. And so, uh, and then part of what urban planners are trying to say now is, well, if I make, if I, you know, if the space in between buildings, which currently now is predominantly dominated with sidewalk, car parking, and streets, Right when you think of a traditional city street, if I change the ratio of how that space is used, and say there's, for instance, no parking or less parking and fewer lanes of traffic for cars to travel, but a wider space for people to ride a bicycle or walk or skateboard or rollerblade or whatever it is they want to do, um, that incentivizes the people who are going to travel on that street to choose something other than a car. Sometimes you need a car Mm. for reasons that are 
you know, obvious once you think about, you know, I'm going to, you know, go to Target or Sam's Club or wherever and buy $300 worth of groceries for my, you know, Super Bowl party or something, right? Well, that's not, it's, you know, that's not two arm, armfuls of groceries that you're going to carry home on the subway, right? I mean, that's, I'm filling the back of a minivan mm-hmm. with groceries, right? Um, but, so you have to accommodate. It's not that cars are always the wrong choice, but it is, people are thinking about it in terms of uh, cars aren't the only default choice now. Maybe there are lots of other ways you can do it. And, um, you know, there are lots of bicycles that can be very accommodating for lots of trips for lots of people, right? Because you can get fairly hefty luggage racks, you can get electric bicycles that can, uh, you know, do most of the work for you, so you don't necessarily have to show up someplace sweaty and gross. Um, if there's lots of facilities to lock a bicycle away, then it it becomes a more viable choice if you spend a little bit of money and make it, uh, to give it some additional resources in the space between buildings. So it's not a wrong thing to think about, but it is an interesting set of choices. I just found that the couple of things they highlighted in the United States were far less ambitious than what was happening in other countries. Yeah. You know, it wasn't ground up type projects. Well, but even when you think about some of the places like, uh, well, let's, you know, think about Paris, right? I mean, you have the same problems in Paris or London as you have in New York or San Francisco. There's a lot of old buildings. The real estate's very valuable. And the idea that you're going to knock down the Empire State Building to make way for a park and a and a bike path is just never, mm-hmm. that's just never going to make sense, right? Um, so the types of things that those cities can choose to do will Are undoubtedly be different than if, hey, this, you know, I've got 100 acres of empty and I'm going to build a city here, right? How am I going to make right. a different set of choices from the beginning? So, yeah. In any case, it's, it's 20 minutes, what's 18 minutes, and it's an interesting uh, kind of wide perspective on where are we and where do we think we might be going. Did you happen to read, there was an article going around this week about the big highway project in LA, the 405? No. They spent like 10 years and $1.6 billion widening it Yeah. to little effect. Um I'm like, sure it carries more cars per day, but it doesn't necessarily. Right. So, like, this one guy that interviewed his commute has gone from, like, what was it, like an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and five minutes to yeah. go, like, 15 miles. Right. So, it's improvement. There is improvement, mm-hmm. but it's incremental improvement. And it was, like, 10 years of construction and $1.6 billion. Yeah. Now, I'm an advocate for, so <laughs> you know, don't just add one lane. Add 10 lanes. Right. Uh, I'm also an advocate for don't keep making it wider. Feel free to stack them up. 
Um, yeah, that was one of the ingenious things in this video. I thought the place where there was multiple decks, essentially, of traffic. Mm-hmm. Like, they were envisioning the cars passing through an overhead tunnel. Yeah. Um, you know, or let's figure out the the vision I've always had for a public transport system is not what we currently have. Uh, like the idea of getting on a train, you know, a subway or whatever, and going from stop to stop to stop is ridiculous to me. Like that doesn't make any sense. I know that's how it works because, you know, trains are heavy and track is expensive and that's just how it is. But I've always envisioned the the transport I should be getting into should weigh um, ideally 500 pounds or less at most maybe a thousand pounds and it should hold up to four people I should be able to get in it and tell it where I want to go and it goes there but it doesn't stop at every station like the next place it stops is where I get out right and because it's relatively light and quite frankly not mm-hmm. that big if it only holds four people it can it doesn't have to stop at the station it can go around the right. station because you can have a bunch of of right. tracks as it were right you know I'm tempted to say the word monorail but that's that's not even I'm even thinking of something that mm-hmm. consumes less mass than that um so you might have to wait longer to get a spot in one of these vehicles, but you would be waiting the time at your place of origin instead of sitting no, on No, I feel like there should be, like these things should be cheap enough mm-hmm. that I shouldn't have to wait at all. There should be, you know, a bajillion of well, these things. Well, isn't this exactly what's going to happen with self-driving cars? Um, in theory, except that a self-driving car is going to weigh 4,000 pounds, mm-hmm. right? Which is, you know, because... It has to arrive on the road with other cars that are not all self-driving and crash into something, right? But if I'm, uh, you know, a little bit up off the ground, if I'm disintermediated from pedestrians and cars, and I feel like I don't really need, you know, massive crash protection because I'm not going to crash into anything, and I just get in the thing... And it doesn't have to go 80 miles an hour. I mean, its maximum speed can be 30 miles an hour. It doesn't have to go very fast. It really shouldn't weigh very much. Um, and it just it goes, and I get there, and I'm stopped, right? And all the intelligence and route planning is done, you know, on a central computer. Today we would call it the cloud, right, to figure out how to get me from here to there. And then when I get there, I get out, and then that car is available for the next person, right? Um, I even feel like I probably don't have to share it with a stranger. Maybe you do at a peak time, but most of the time you don't. Or maybe you pay a premium, and you don't have to share it with somebody else. Um, and if I've got more than four people, I say, I need two, and then they become linked. And so we don't necessarily travel in the same the same pod but both pods leave and arrive at the same time 
right? They just suck up next to each other and travel as one unit. Well, good luck with that, because what this video tells me is all we're really going to achieve in the United States is more bikes. Well, it is hard to argue with the efficiency and beauty of a bicycle. Maybe not. You don't agree. Do you even own a bicycle? Yes. Do you I have it? two bicycles. Two? And I'm thinking about buying a third one. What? <laughs> whoa, what do you got? So I have a road bike. Yeah. And I have just a normal, like a hybrid bike. Mountain bike? It's not really a mountain bike. I mean, it has smooth tires. It's more... Like, I don't like riding. My road bike has clip pedals. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm just riding to the gym or to the grocery store or something, I don't like riding my road bike. It's really only if I'm doing distance road riding. Yep. So then I have the second bike just for a trip to the grocery store type stuff. And my third bike, I want to get one of those fat bikes with the snow tires. Yeah. Fat and I still might do that. Uh, yeah, I ride bikes quite a bit. So I have a road bike. Um I'd kind of like to get another bike that is just more casual um, because the road bike, I mean, I, I used, I didn't have clips, but I had the, the cages, the cages. I took those off. Um, I, I don't know. There's lots of things I could do with this road bike to make it more casual, but the real answer is probably just get a different bike that is designed to be comfortable and easy, uh, and just, you know, have it, right? You don't have to spend a thousand dollars having right. it. You can get one of these for a couple hundred bucks, especially if you can find one used, you can probably get a nice one for under a hundred dollars. I think that's a better solution. I mean, it depends on, I mean, my particular road bike, I have it configured such that it's comfortable for long rides. So like the seat is pushed way back, you know, and I'm kind of down low and hunched forward in the bike. Yeah. That's not how I want to, I mean, I, I can't, I can hardly ride it in like jeans. Right. Because it's just like, you know, I'm in a position such that I can't pedal wearing jeans on that bike. Yes. So it just is not, you know, you would have to alter your road bike such that it was more of a comfort position right. in order to ride it in pants. Yeah. To the grocery store, so it just made more sense to get my my everyday ride to the grocery store bike, which I call a hybrid bike. I, I wouldn't really call it a mountain bike because it doesn't really have like the shocks or the knobby tires or anything. Um, I think so. Then what is a hybrid of? Well, you know, it has the flat handlebars, so they're flat across the yeah. front. I have that. On I don't my know. Road bike, that's what they call it. That's it's, just what I chose. Okay. See, I think traditionally a road bike has the dropped handlebars, yeah. you know? Anyway, it's a, it's a significantly different bike. It has much more of an upright feel to it. Like, yeah. you aren't leaned forward in it. You're sitting straight up. Right. Um, it was inexpensive because it's just my bum-around bike, whereas my road bike was relatively expensive. Yep. Because um, you're going for the components and the weight and... I, I'd kind of like to get an electric bicycle, just that appeals to the nerd in me. But you know, that's it sounds like too much work. Ah, they're two thousand bucks, and yeah. the point is to not have to do the work. Yeah, if I, before I got an electric bike, I'd get like a scooter or something, like a Vespa or something like that. Oh man, that's a turn in your man card. 
<laughs> it's because I always wanted a moped. I wanted a moped so bad when I was in high school, and I didn't get one. So <laughs> yeah. Well, so I want to you know like. It, I mean, did you ever learn to ride one? <laughs> no, I didn't have one. I feel like you should. Maybe this summer you should take the motorcycle safety course. Yeah, well, I'll take it with you. It'll be fun. I've I've been I'm interested in having a motorcycle. Just I wouldn't go on long road rides or anything, but just for getting around town. This summer, so. let's sign up and take the motorcycle safety course. I did just very recently buy a second bike helmet because I only had like my like racing helmet, you know, yeah. my sport helmet. And I didn't really like wearing that when I was just riding, you know, an errand or something. So I got one of these that, you know, it's more of like a skull cap oh, yeah. kind. Um, it looks like more of like an urban helmet. And I feel more comfortable riding around in that. Isn't it weird that so. we wear bicycle helmets now? Did you wear a bicycle helmet growing up? No. Neither did I. I did fall off my bike once though and had a bad concussion, so I probably should have. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure I fell off my bicycle a gazillion times, mm -hmm. right? And used to ride them through ditches and jump up. I mean, it was, you know, how eight-year-old kids in my neighborhood got around, right? And, uh, man, we had nothing. You know, just every so often, somebody would go home with a broken this or yeah. bloodied that, and that was just how it was. Anyway, enough of telling people to get off my lawn. Okay. So let's talk about this last thing, uh, which will be somewhat hard to do because it's Times, uh, Time Magazine's um, 100 Photos uh, website, right? So it's their 100 most important photos, uh, what is it, of the 20th century? Is that what it's about? Let me look at the they about. say of all time, so like of since all time. the beginning of photography, which is uh, considered to be 1826. Okay, so um, so there's a hundred. All of these photos are phenomenal. Um, I've picked out three, uh, and I don't know how many you've picked out. Um, I mean, we're effectively, I mean, on a podcast here, you know. It's hard. We have to describe the photo, but mm -hmm. we'll have the link so you can go look. Uh-oh. There it goes. Safari was about to keel over and die. So the first photo that I've picked uh, was from 1971, taken by uh, Ron Galila. I think that's how you say his name. It's of uh, Jackie Onassis. It's the windblown jackie picture and so i think um her expression and the the candidness of it is fantastic um it's kind of a once in a lifetime photo but when you read into it a little bit like this guy was paparazzi and kind of a little bit annoying and so um Jackie Onassis was his favorite target, as it were. Um, and so I don't think she really liked him. Uh, but he was hiding, right, in a taxi, and he got the taxi driver to honk the horn. 
uh, when she was crossing the street in New York. And so she didn't know that it was him and turned and looked and had, a, you know, a, a pleasant facial expression, I guess I'll say. Uh, and he, you know, took the picture and, uh, and there it was. Um, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's a great, great photo. What's one that you've got? Yeah. Well, before you move on, it's interesting too. There was another one. Um, what do they call it? Camelot, the one of Jackie and JFK on their boat. Oh yeah. Yeah. 1953 Camelot. Hypeskin. I thought it was interesting that there were two photos that she's in. Obviously, that's the only person who is in multiple. I thought you unplugged that. I can't unplug. I unplug the water, oh. the cat's water fountain. That was the food, and it has a battery backup. So I would have to take out the six D cell batteries. Well, because you know, if I'm gone and no, electricity totally goes out, the cat still has to get fed. So yeah. there's really nothing to be done except move it to another room. No, that's it's fine. So I just I saw you over there unplugging something, and then it worked, and I thought, wow, that's creepy. Yeah. Um, there, so that you know tells you that she's a very beautiful person if she's in two of Time's top 100 photos. Yeah. Um, but when I looked through them originally, I thought that was interesting. Um, so I was drawn more to like the the modern photos just because um, when I was looking through them, so many of these, before I read anything about it, I could tell you the exact context of the photo because when it's, you know, during our recent lifetimes, yep. um, you know, I didn't have to read about it because I've seen this photo. I've seen it on the news. I've already read an article about it. Uh, so the first one I would talk about, a little lighter than yours, was this. They had this 2014 Oscar selfie, uh, the Ellen DeGeneres selfie. Uh, I think they have attributed it to Bradley Cooper, but yeah. Well, yeah, oh, yeah, because he took it, right? right. She was the host of the Oscars. And there are so many things that are funny to me about this. So I actually watch this Oscars telecast. I usually watch yep. the Oscars. Um, and so... The process of them taking this selfie in the telecast was in and of itself interesting. But she had that crazy-ass Samsung phone. I think it was the original Note um, that was just huge. That didn't blow up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, how far the Note has fallen <laughs> since the days that Ellen DeGeneres was using it on the Oscar stage. Anyway, so... Samsung had paid all this promotional money for her to be using this phone publicly right. during the telecast. And so it was very important that she take this selfie. Originally, it was supposed to just be a selfie with her and Meryl Streep. And then... Who's... I mean... It's kind of, she's just kind of smashed in the photo. Yeah, she's smashed in there because it's... Um, uh, uh, um, why can't I think of... Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence. All I could think of was the girl on fire, which yeah. is, was true then and maybe isn't quite so true now. Uh, so yeah, then Bradley was, Cooper, and you know, if you read on this, since he's the author, you know, the photographer. He was holding it. Yeah, there's a little clip of uh, somebody talking with him about this. And, you know, he was down below. So he's like, here, just let me let... He took the camera and he wanted to take the picture for of them. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when somebody's taking a selfie, you're like, here, just let me take the picture. She's like, no, no, it, it's got to be a selfie because Samsung had wanted her to take a selfie. Right. Because I'm sure the Note was one of the first ones maybe with the selfie camera or, you know, no. selfie. 
well, some enhancements, you know, a couple it years back, there were the like these enhancements that were being yeah. made so they could advertise, you know, yeah. it fair specifically for taking selfies. It wasn't just a front facing camera anymore. It was the selfie camera. Anyway, so he's like, oh, okay, well, let me take the selfie then, you know, and everybody starts crowding around and they take the picture. Um, and it's just the people who are in it. I mean, Kevin Spacey, Julia Roberts, Brad Pitt. It's just, it's, it's an iconic photograph. It, it really is. is. I could see people being dismissive of this, you know, thinking it doesn't belong on um, this list. I think it definitely does. It, yeah, I think it does. Um, it's spontaneous. Yeah. Two more interesting things about it. Number one, it's not a great picture because it's not a great camera lens. Because you know, it's, it's a, a freaking Samsung. Right. It's a little fuzzy. <laughs> um, and so that's the interesting part that the photo is essentially damaged by the fact they were taking it with this phone that they were forced to use for like uh, marketing purposes. Um, and the other thing was during the telecast, I remember there's a little controversy because, of course, Ellen uses an iPhone. Yeah. And when she was backstage tweeting during the telecast, it was done from her iPhone. And then anything she was doing while on camera was done from the Samsung phone. Yes. <laughs> the thing I think is funny about this is Brad Pitt is moving, so he's a little bit out of focus. Yep. But not a lot. So if you just glance at it, like he's a little bit out of focus, but you're... you're your mind just kind of moves past it, and he looks like he's been photoshopped to be like 15 years younger. <laughs> right? Like, a, you know, it's like a little Vaseline on yeah, the on the lens. <laughs> that's how you know that Brad Pitt is truly one of Hollywood's <laughs> finest leading men because he can defy his age, even from a cell phone camera. Very few people have given up enough of their soul to make that happen. <laughs> so I just personally love this picture. Fantastic. Uh, all right, so I'm going to go farther back in time uh, and go to uh, 1968's Earthrise, uh, which was taken by uh, William Anders from the surface of the moon. Uh, well, I take that back. It wasn't from the surface of the moon. Was it um, from the shuttle? No, it's... Um, uh, it was taken from lunar orbit on Apollo 8. So you can see the moon in the foreground. Mm -hmm. um, but that is... Uh, that's basically the first photograph of all of Earth. Um, I don't know. I've always thought that that and a lot of the moon photography is, is really quite amazing to be able to see our whole planet just as a small little mm -hmm. blue speck. Or as Carl Sagan used to say, you know, the pale blue dot in the inky blackness of space. Um, yeah. I, you know, I find it amazing. Um, So yeah, I don't know what else there is to say about it, right? That was we can cool. go take some more of those pictures again one day. Definitely. Was... There was several other, you know, there was in 1969, the shot taken by Neil Armstrong of a man on the moon um, made the list. And then there was a, an image from the Hubble Space Telescope. Yeah. Um, one of the famous 
the uh, Pillars of Creation. Yeah. That was it is an iconic, yeah. iconic photograph. Yep. Those are all very cool. All right, so what else you got? Oh, so another one I found interesting was, and it's another fairly recent one, was the 2011 Situation Room picture. Oh. Yeah, this was the when, Osama Bin Laden raid. Right. right. Um, and this is one I'm sure everybody's seen, but I just think it's such an interesting picture on many different levels. Number one is the people you have in the room. You know, you have Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, you have the president, you have the vice president, all of the military personnel. And if you click into this and scroll down, there's a little um, aside called Who's Who in the Situation Room. And it has a silhouetted version of the photograph with everyone labeled in their positions. Um, yeah. It is interesting to look at all the important people that were in the room. Um, just the expressions, the different expressions on everybody's face. Um, I think the setting of it is interesting because it just looks kind of like your average conference room, you know, like in, in fiction and in movies, when you see scenes in the situation room, right. You know, it's very high tech, it's very big, spacious. Um, and it's just a bunch of people crammed around, you know, a wooden conference room table, essentially. With their crappy Windows laptops sprawled out. Yes. You know, and their reading glasses laying. Um, and then in front of Secretary of State Clinton, you see there's a pixelated image. Like something was sitting there. Um, oh, it's probably some piece of intelligence yeah. that had to be pixelated before the photo could be released. That's probably um, satellite photographs of the compound, compound. I would assume. I also like that, you know, it's a picture taken of everyone who's looking at something that's off camera. Yep. And so I have no idea what they're looking at. Are they looking at like a PowerPoint presentation screen? Are they looking at a massive TV screen? It, you know, is it a video feed from somebody? Like, what it, are they looking at? It was a video feed from the raid. I Does it say exactly when the picture was taken? Because what you can get a sense of here is the tension Right, the palpable mm-hmm. tension that's in the in the photo, um, and I don't know if you know how much you know what actually went down in that raid, right? But there was a well, I saw Zero Dark Thirty. That's what I know about it. I haven't seen that. I read a book about it, uh, and it was you know the 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 White House. Right, the CIA, our country, had suspected for several months that maybe Osama bin Laden was there. And we've been watching the house very intently for, I want to say, six months by the time they decided to go. And they still didn't know. There was a lot of disagreement inside the government about whether Osama bin Laden was there or not. Uh... But the the um, the head of of the the JSOC commander, the Joint Special Operations Command, uh, was confident that sending in the seals was the best way to figure out the right answer or not. But when you start thinking about 
the particulars about what's going to happen when this goes on and be the case, right? If you choose this path, you have to think about what are the contingency plans for what can or can't happen. And it was felt that having complete and total surprise and security, you know, operational security was important. So, you know, the compound was in Pakistan, which is a sovereign country that the United States is not at war with. It's ostensibly our ally. <clears throat> that compound that Osama bin Laden was at was about a mile from Pakistani military base. So it's not really stretching the truth to say that we were going to go commit an act of war against a sovereign country. And so you don't really know how they're going to react. The, 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 but you've got to do it with a small force because you're hoping that you can get in and out before they even know that you're there. That's the plan. But by the same token, you have to effectively be prepared to fight off the Pakistani army to complete your objective. So, you know, there were two stealth helicopters full of SEALs. One uh, had the team that was going to go into the compound and see if Osama bin Laden was there and capture whoever they felt they needed to capture. The other was going to be there and was going to be on the outside of the compound to dissuade anyone from outside to come in and to prevent anyone from in getting out. And then on the border of Pakistan was a giant, giant, a much larger fighting force that was going to be prepared to go in, fight their way in, and fight their way out if the SEALs got in trouble and there was a huge military response from the Pakistanis. So the tension before this started was huge because of what was going to happen and who it potentially was and all the ways that it could go bad. And then, you know, while they're watching it happen in real time, that helicopter crashes. Which means before it even... Before the whole thing even gets started, we, not only have we deviated from the plan, but we've deviated from the plan so badly that maybe even the team that you're sending in to go do this job might have just died before they got to do the job, right? So the, the, the tension that had to be in that room, in that tiny little crappy conference room with all of those you know, powerful and important people in the government, mm -hmm. effectively powerless to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. The plans have been made, things have been set in motion, and now it's just down to, you know, a bunch of guys with a with a cavalier attitude and some guns to go out into the night and try to do this thing for for God and country. <laughs> I, yeah, it's a fantastic story. Um, I don't know. Maybe one day it'll be turned into a truly excellent movie, but 
Zero Dark Thirty was a pretty good movie. You should watch it. Yeah. Like, I think they did a good job with the story. And from what I understand, it's fairly accurate. Um, anyway, all What's of that? that aside, not knowing anything you just said, it's still a fantastic photo. Um, even back to, you know, the people in the back kind of peeking around. Because there's way too many people crammed in this room. Yep. Um, Obama's wearing a polo shirt and a jacket. Like, where did he come from? He's underdressed for the occasion. Uh, looking around. Wasn't there uh, some sort of, um, like, dinner going on that night? There was, like, a uh, the press dinner or something. I don't know. Mm. There was some other public thing going on that night. Anyway, there's just a lot to observe in this photograph. Yeah. Um, that I like it. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that military theme, my third and final pick to talk about here is the uh, 1945 photo of the flag raising on Iwo Jima. And it was taken by uh, Joe Rosenthal. Um, this photo is... Uh, it, it is not too much... It is not inappropriate to, to... It's almost impossible to overstate how important this photo was to our war effort. Both for the men, you know, the, the act of raising the flag on Iwo Jima, um, and to the morale of everyone back home. Uh, the... Do you know anything about the Battle of Iwo Jima? Nope. Um, if you don't have respect for the Japanese as a fighting force, uh, you sh you will once you read about um, how bravely and tenaciously they fought and we fought over this island. <laughs> um, the... Uh, it took a month to claim the island. Uh, 6,800 Americans died, and 21,000 Japanese died. Um, so we wanted the island for an air base, um, and the Japanese wanted the island so that we didn't have the island. Uh, it's, uh, it was a terrible battle. Um, the, uh, uh, if you, if you want a quick, uh, and interesting history of it without having to read a bunch of books, um, Clint Eastwood made, uh, two movies on this topic. Um, I think one's called Iwo Jima and the other one's called Flags of Our Fathers. They're, they're related movies. They're fantastic. Um, this iconic photo um, it was actually the second time this was done right uh, the first time the flag was raised when the Americans actually captured this um, the, it's uh, Mount uh, Suribachi I think I'm saying that right um, they just they captured it and so they stuck up a small flag and the, the I think it was the next day 
it was decided we should have a bigger flag and, uh, you know, we should get a better photo of it. Right. It's kind of a photo op moment. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I believe there are photos of the original flag raising, but, um, but this photo was taken not, not immediately after the battle ended, um, is I mean you could argue that it's perhaps a little bit staged and to some extent it kind of is but the um, it doesn't that doesn't diminish its story at all uh, in in my mind so um, I don't know there's lots of interesting little tidbits I mean the the photographer Joe Rosenthal uh, you know he had a, a, a fairly bulky camera um and he was he was trying to get a good spot to take a picture but then you know the marines and the the navy guy were just doing it so he literally almost missed (laughs) missed the shot uh but still uh you know fortune favored him and he ended up getting this iconic image right you got a flag blowing in the wind as one of your subjects which is yeah not necessarily cooperating right um, so I don't know. It's a uh, it's a powerful photo, and it's, it's one that I've always admired. So looking through it, I notice, you know, that's one of what I would call classic photographs. You know, that everyone, you know, you look at it and you know what it is. You've seen it before. You don't need somebody to explain the context of the image, and you know there were a lot of them that are like that like the mushroom cloud over nagasaki um the that iconic image of the sailor and the nurse kissing in times square the hindenburg um, hindenburg disaster the tank tank man after the tiananmen, oh, tiananmen square. square yeah i love that photo um the loch ness monster image yeah. did you read about that that's interesting i did uh the lunch atop a skyscraper that one where yep. all the guys are sitting on the steel beam eating their lunch um, a friend of mine in college had a poster of that. That was a big poster yeah. subject. Same with the Kiss in Times Square. That's a big yep. poster reproduction image. Um, so that's what I, I thought was fun. A lot of them that are like that, you know, that everyone recognizes. And the other kind of interesting takeaway I had from it is um, many of them, maybe even a majority of them, are coming from... Um, war situations or crises or um, shot of people in poverty. There's a couple, you know, in Somalia and... um, Oh, there's the one... uh, Where was it? Here. Yeah, the migrant mother. Uh Uh-huh. That's an iconic picture that I've seen before. Yeah. Um, The Kent State Massacre... Uh, I mean, so many of them are taken under such tragic circumstances, and that's part of what makes them incredible photographs, right, is the emotional transference of the image. It's that they've Um, managed to capture in the image part of the emotion of the situation. Yes. Um, There are lots of photographs taken of lots of emotional things, and most of them are terrible. Um, You know, the, the Black Power salute, is a very powerful photograph. Mm-hmm. Right? It carries with it a lot of emotional weight just in that still black and white image. Um, I don't know. I really, 
you know, for a period of time, I worked for a a company that um, hosted photos on the internet, but it really thought of itself in a lot of ways as not only just a technology company and an internet company, but as a photography company. And uh, one of the things that I have developed from my time working there was a appreciation for um, photography and its power to to tell an interesting story. Um, so, you know, one of the things the internet can do is bring you pictures um, that you might not otherwise get to see. And so these 100 photos are clearly worth uh, five or 10 minutes of your time to, to peruse and click through and, and read a little bit about. Definitely. Um, yeah, I would, uh, it'd be interesting if some other publication, like what would National Geographic, you know, 100 photos be? Would they be these or would they be some other ones? I don't know. The interesting thing about this, I think that needs to be understood is a lot of the images, it's not the 100 best photos as in we're judging the composition and what's in focus. And, you know, it's not necessarily these aren't many of these are not the greatest photographs. It's what they represent or, you know, the context. Like, for instance, one of them was uh just average sort of baby picture, but it was the first picture sent um, over a cell phone. Yeah, the first cell phone picture. Right. So that's in the top 100 photos. Not a particularly interesting photograph. You ever go watch the first video uploaded to YouTube? No. It's like some silly photo from somebody at a zoo or something like that. Like, there's nothing... the, The video itself is terrible, but it just has the distinction of being the first one that was uploaded to YouTube. And so... Yeah, it is in and of itself a milestone. Right. So that's the thing. Many of these are not meant to be judged for the photographic qualities. Many of them are, but many of them, it's just the point in time that they represent. Yeah, um, that gets them on the list, which is interesting. A lot of the f- one of the things when you read about photographers is um, some people just got lucky. Um, most of them. Their luck came from working hard to get themselves in the position to take the photograph that they did. Right. Right. You know, like the uh, Joe Rosenthal, the Associated Press photographer that took the Iwo Jima photo. I mean, yeah, he almost missed it, right? But he was still a photographer in one of the fiercest battles in World War Two, you know, in the Pacific Theater. Uh, and so he was there taking pictures, putting his life on the line, trying to document what was going on, right? So he had to work hard to be there in order to be able to take that that photo. Um, you know, the guy that, uh, the Situation Room photo, right? Like, what that means is a photographer had to, do whatever you had to do to be the White House photographer and then be in that room and then not watch the thing that literally everybody else was watching in order to take right. that photo. Um, and lots of the most interesting photography that you see involves somebody uh, doing whatever they got to do 
to be in the position they're in in order to take the photo. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a, you know, it's not, you know, not something that you're just going to happen across, right? You got, there's a lot of work that goes into being the guy that's there taking that picture. Indeed. All right. Well, it's been an enjoyable time. Until next week. All right. See you, Matt.